fireworks and soda All the cookies we could eat Make you nauseous but be cautious This is not Dawson's Creek We could sneak away Fuck it, you could bring a ace I'm not gonna smoke but I'm just asking baby Could you meet me by the lake? Said bring a towel Baby, meet me by the lake Baby, so it's going down Shit, just meet me by the lake We could count the shooting stars Just cold. I packed a couple sandwiches inside that basket And brought some extra towels if anyone was asking We should take a dip in that lake quick and then split Then do something that's beyond what we both can't imagine Watch the sunset, we can watch the sunset Watch the sunset, we can watch the sunset in the sky Watch the sunset, we can watch the sunset have to leave Watch the sunset, that goes around Something called the press there. It's pretty good. It's about the police, obviously. Oh, well, uh, I don't know too that's relevant. Nah. I, also, I'm not saying that we're uh, we're we're Nostradamus, but I'm also not saying that we're not Nostradamus. Well, yeah, so that's the thing. I don't remember if I cut it or not. I think it's still in last week's episode. No, I listened to it for last week's episode when I was cleaning the house on Friday. To make sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we did I, mention it was we, it was recorded last Sunday. And we we we, uh, we did mention. Felt like something was coming, like the axe was about to fall. And yeah, I don't think we manifested it or it was like we're Nostradamuses or anything. It's just anyone who pays attention, um, you know, you can tell. Well, the anxieties have been building for, I don't know, a couple decades now for some things. Obviously, the police brutality is, you know, 200 years worth of oppression. And then... I don't know. One of my first memories as a kid is watching the L.A. riots. So, <laughs> Rodney King. Yeah, it's not like it's you know, it's not like this is the first or second <laughs> or even third time this has happened. No, um, I think it's different this time though. I don't know. We'll see. Well, here's my thinking right now: is uh, statistically, uh, revolutions, revolts, things like that tend to happen in the summer, and uh, our country's been brewing a little powder keg. For, for a long time now and at the moment i mean it's reaching the boiling point right we're about to have historic unemployment people can't feed their families can't pay rent we're watching our fellow citizens get killed in the street and then when people go out to protest for any kind of change all it is is the brutality of the state that's all you see is the police agitating it further nothing changing and, you know, people got a lot of free time on their hands right now because of the quarantine, coronavirus. And what do you do if you got a lot of free time? You don't have to work. It gives you a lot of time to sit and think, right? Are you waiting for a response? Or are you? I was waiting for you to go on. Uh, no, I just am. I don't know. I think something's coming. I think it's going to be a long, hot summer is what I'm saying. Mm, we'll see. I guess when I'm, we're getting, I'm getting at it. I, I, I don't know. We'll I mean, We're still yeah, early, and like people said, oh, the you know, I've heard for so long that shit's going to change. We're it's early in the summer. We'll we'll see. It's early in the the movement. I'm sure people thought, you know, back in Baltimore or in Ferguson that shit was going to change too. Yeah, or, but uh, the Rodney been, King, or yeah. uh, or uh, let's go even further back. Let's talk about Emmett Till. <laughs> you know what I mean? This well, shit that's is the thing not. Is, um, society, things ebb and flow. Um, the government passes out little concessions to the people to get them to shut up for a little bit, right? Then it builds up again. You get little concessions. Then it builds up again. You get little concessions. But I don't know. I think we're at a different 
I'm hoping I'm, I'm not hoping for violence or anything like that, but I'm hoping that we're at a different point now than we have been before where enough people are kind of opening their eyes to the system failing most everyone, especially black and brown people, people of color, people getting left behind. And now that it's finally starting to touch middle America, some of, you know, your boring ass white people are waking up and being like, you know what, there is a problem, but we'll see. And that's the thing is if it comes down to it, I'm not trying to feed into the media's narrative about outside agitators or whatever, (laughs) but um, there is obviously right wing militias that are armed and also want the fall of the government, but they want the fall of the government so that they can institute white power state. Yeah, I mean, there's not even necessarily that too. But like, anytime there's um, there's any type of you know protest or riot or, or, or there's opportunists, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So civil unrest, you're gonna have opportunists or people that you know are just agitating to agitate. Yeah, I'm the. You could tell that the some some like uh, memo came down from on high today for the media to play the outside agitator angle though. Cause that's all they've been pushing. Yeah, well, here's the thing too. Like my thing is uh, if the whole country is protesting, where are they coming who, from? Who's an outside, who's the outside agitator? They're all switching cities, right? So there's protests in every major city in the United States, but everyone switched. Yeah, also uh, like Minnesota they, went to California, California yeah, went yeah. to New York. <laughs> the breaking right. news this morning was, uh, Right. Oh, well, the people that were arrested, well, 80% of them from outside the state. Well, yeah. local news investigated it. That was a lie. Then they switched. Oh, well, no, we were talking about St. Paul. That was investigated. That was a lie, too. But they kept still going with the narrative, even though it was you know, proven to be false. In fact, the mayor of St. Paul came out and said, I apologize for having incorrect information. You know, I should have fact-checked it and blah, blah, blah. But then the rest of his speech was him still talking about outside agitators coming in and causing the problem. What they're trying to do is take away the teeth from the movement. <clears throat> they're trying to make it so that uh, the middle America, the fence-sitters, can, you know, they, can, uh, they can feel comfortable with themselves by not supporting what's going on. Right, which is what's basically They can play with, both uh, sides. Like, oh, it's white versus black. It's right versus left. These are just extremists and blah, blah, blah. No, this is real justified righteous anger from the black community and it needs people need to sit down and recognize it and they need to fucking support it you can't sit on the fence and play around with this bullshit anymore this is why it's been going on for so long i don't know i'm fucking pissed off i'm really upset about it. it's all i've been able to think about all week hmm. Hmm. you should take a step back my brother because really there's not much you can do about it yeah that's the thing is uh so I donated a little bit what I could to like the bail funds for uh, right. Minneapolis and stuff. But like, um, like this isn't a joke to anyone listening or whatever. I'm not, we're not like real ass podcasters that are making tons of money. Oh, I, got, shit. I, got, I got no cash. Right yeah. Now. I'm fucking dirt poor. Like that's another thing. They're talking about these white anarchists like coming to different towns and shit. I'm a white anarchist. I don't know if I can afford the gas to go 30 miles to Phoenix for the protests. I ain't got shit. Yeah, you're definitely not showing up in like new fucking black converse. No, fuck that. That's that's not real life. But yeah, I don't know. I'm doing what I can, but I don't know. I mean, I was going to go to the protest last night here in Phoenix, but 
uh, it was getting passed around that it was actually set up by a far right. Oh, I was going to tell, tell you that too. That the guy in Phoenix is like a Trump supporter. Yeah, he's just like trying to troll everyone. The parts protest still went off, but I was thinking about it as like, if everyone shows up for the cause you advertise, like, what did you actually accomplish? You know what I mean? I don't know. I feel like you can push people into weird directions. Like, that, I guess that they may not have gone. Yeah, I don't know. That's the thing is, if you're some far right dickhead and you're like, all right, we're protesting Black Lives Matter tonight, and everyone shows up supporting Black Lives Matter, and you're just like not in sight, in sight you're just at home laughing about it. It's like, well, I mean, great prank, I guess. <laughs> Got people <laughs> on the streets to protest something they believe in. And yeah, and then as far as uh, the fucking right wing agitators go, to squash that a little bit. We saw a couple of the Boogaloo boys show up in Ohio today in their little Hawaiian shirts, the little ch- chubby little pussy white boys. And they immediately ran to the police and got escorted out. These are just pussies that talk shit on the internet. There might actually be dangerous militias and shit, but it was Maganite at the White House tonight. I don't see any fucking maggots chilling outside the White House trying to protect it. <laughs> no. Yeah, so... But it's, is, you know, there's a lot of black people in D.C., so they're, they're not going to yeah, that's I don't know. This thing is they're just trying to make the fucking white moderate comfortable with what's going on so they can be feel comfortable not supporting, you know, righteous anger. Well, I mean, that's kind of like the that's model the American, for all, yeah. uh, you know, how you handle protests. Yeah, uh, that's what happened like the Occupy Wall Street to a large extent. I think the problem, major problem with Occupy Wall Street seemed to be how disorganized it was. But interestingly, I've been reading about um, the history of like uh, leftist coalitions and coalition building since Occupy has gotten quite a bit better. Like and a uh, lot of those coalitions are run by like former Occupy people too. Yeah, well, there's people that were involved in Occupy that basically became professionals after that. You know what I mean? And also, not to feed into the narrative that Trump's trying to push that fucking professional Antifa agents are out there formulating these protests and shit no they're they're helping and helping with the protests and helping people get organized and shit like that but they're doing it out of a drive to make a change not that they're somehow fuck it, it's a money operation the revolution will not be televised there will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of Whitney Young being run out of Harlem on a rail with a brand new process. There will be no slow motion or still lights of Roy Wilkins strolling through Watts in a red, black, and green liberation jumpsuit that he has been saving for just the proper occasion. Acres, Beverly Hillbillies, and Hooterville Junction will no longer be so damn relevant, and women will not care if Dick finally got down with Jane on Search for Tomorrow, because black people will be in the street looking for a brighter day. The revolution will not be televised. Anyhow, we watched Friday the 13th. <laughs> it's a heartless cash grab by some piece of shit Hollywood dude, and it fucking sucks. End of podcast. <laughs> yeah, I fucking hate Friday the 13th. You don't like it or any of its many sequels? Nope. This is like the worst aspect of horror film and independent filmmaking. Like, yeah, great. It was a great success for an independent film to be picked up by a major studio to release some fucking Halloween knockoff shit so they could turn a quick profit and then turn it into multi-million dollar fucking movie industry bullshit. No care, no craft beyond the first one. Fucking it's garbage. 
Friday the Thirteenth was whack. If you like Friday the Thirteenth series, you're fucking stupid. People that helped create the first Friday the Thirteenth agree with me. Um, that's like uh, like eighty percent of horror fans. It seems like. Well, yeah. The, the unfortunate thing of most horror fans is they're the same as Marvel fanboys, where they just like the um products. Most popular one that came out. They just like uh, cool products, cool media products. There's one good Halloween. There's like two good Nightmare on Elm Streets, the two that involve Wes Craven, and then no good Friday the 13th. So it's all just fucking corporate trash. Anyhow, a group of camp counselors are stalked and murdered by an unknown assailant while trying to reopen a summer camp, which was the site of a child's drowning in a grisly double murder years before. Directed by Sean S. Cunningham. Um, like William Girdler, Oliver Hellman, or even Ed Wood, Sean Cunningham had a successful career of starting films cheap and fast. He also starred in softcore porn with Wes Craven. <laughs> Did he star in West Cor- West no, he, Corp? No, I mean, he's, he started making films in softcore porn. Him and Wes Craven did, you know, some, some, some scenes together. Pretty sexy. <laughs> they were sword fighting. Friday the 13th is his only noteworthy solo film. Uh, he's produced a bunch of the sequels and even the Friday the 13th video game. Which Friday Thirteenth video game is not that bad, but I, the, what's the, uh, the 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 other one that's better? Dead by, Dead by Daylight. Daylight. Yeah, yeah, that one's also, of course, just a marketing tool for horror properties and shit too. But it's the more well, yeah, interesting. Yeah, and at this point, they have like nine hundred different. Yeah, they got fucking Stranger games. Things in there and shit. They just reskinned it too, isn't it? Isn't it just like a hide and seek game, right? Pretty much. You just gotta turn off the generators and shit. It's just interesting that um, it's uh, competitive enough that there's like a competitive scene for it. You know, there's like people that are really good at it, which is interesting. But yeah, otherwise though, it is just um, cross marketing disguised as an entertainment product, which is everything. I don't know. I'm just seeing propaganda everywhere all the time. Now, I'm losing my mind. That's all. I mean, it's always always been like I don't know. It's been like that for forty, fifty years. That's consumer culture. Uh, Sean Cunningham cut his teeth in the industry directing softcore porn and then eventually transitioned into horror with fellow porn aficionado Wes Craven, with whom he directed the 1971 horror classic Last House on the Left. He also directed the uh, spooky chase sequence in the first Nightmare on Elm Street. So that's cool, I guess. <laughs> I don't wait. You know, when he that? has like long arms. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. that's cool. Yeah, it's not bad. Obviously, I'm sure West, the, the West Craven had the screenplay and told him what to do. So, I don't know. Anytime it's like, yeah, this guy directed this scene. If it's not like Quentin Tarantino's scene from Sin City or Steven Spielberg's like opening scene in Empire or uh, Revenge, yeah, Sith. Revenge of the Sith, it's like, mm, what did they really do, though? <laughs> follow directions. Yeah. Instead of giving directions, they followed them. Despite his association with Friday the 13th, its sequels, and various other horror films, he has repeatedly reiterated that he is personally not a fan of the horror genre at all. To quote him here, he says, I am not a fan of brutal, ugly horror films. I don't like them. I don't enjoy them. Shut up, bitch. It's, it's how I've made all my money. Yeah, but I love money. Money, money, money. But the residual checks are amazing. I love all the merchandise and all the money I get from the merchandise. They just keep making the movies, too. And video games. I'm rich. (laughs) I'm rich, biatch. Written by Victor Miller. He wrote this and then um, soap operas. He's just been writing soap operas since then. What? Yeah. There you go. He claimed he's not seen any of the other Friday the 13th films since he does not like the idea of Jason being the killer. Even the ones I've produced. 
<laughs> oh no, this is the writer. I don't think he. Oh, okay. He's not involved with it after that. Uh, Victor Miller, the writer, had hoped he'd become famous for writing a movie like Airplane, but ended up doing this instead. He said this surprised him for several reasons, the least of which being he never liked horror films either. He wrote the script in two weeks. Boy, does it show. <laughs> it's just like, oh, a murder happens, and then bad dialogue for a while, and perhaps and not another, another murder. murder. There really is no story. It's just like there's a bunch of people no. in, a, in the woods, and then they die. This is the one time where the IMDb's like bare, simple synopsis like accurately tells you what the movie is. Uh, Cunningham and Miller met in 1977 while making a low-budget ripoff of the Bad News Bears called Here Come the Tigers, which Cunningham directed and Miller wrote. By that point, Cunningham had experienced no success, no success since The Last House on the Left, and Miller was a former novelist slash playwright just getting started with screenwriting. They made a, it seems like they were on the career trajectory to like make um what are the equivalent of like the uh knockoff movies you used to see in the video store all the time well i mean that's kind of what they did friday the 13th is not not i mean yeah it's it it is absolutely a knockoff of halloween it's just that one happened to get successful so they were able to change the trajectory of their careers into writing soap operas for one of them and then um just making money off the residuals for the other (laughs) I gotta imagine, like the one dude is still making some money out the original. If they they created Jason, right? So they gotta make money every time they make a new. Yeah, he has all of his writing credits aside from soap operas are the other Jason movies because he has to be credited for characters by you know. Mm. Yeah, that's where the money is. Real star of the show. The only good aspect of the film, Tom Savini. We talked about him before. He's the king of gore. He's did the makeup effects and uh, stunts and everything in this movie. He's a pretty cool guy, except for um, they actually kill the snake in the movie, the part they kill the snake. That's actually them killing the snake, and that's Tom Savini with the machete just killing the snake. That kind of sucks. Those bastards. It's not the first time a real animal's been hurt for a horror movie. Yeah. Obviously, the the main culprit is Cannibal Holocaust, which apparently they just showed last night on Joe Bob Briggs at the, the, the drive-in show. Oof. Last drive-in. Oof, that's a rough one. Yeah, they announced it in advance that, well, this is a movie we're going to be watching. We understand if you don't want to watch it. We filmed a version of it where it's just me, where it was just Joe Bob and Darcy the male girl. There's like segments talking about the movie so you don't actually have to watch the movie, which I think is pretty thoughtful. Trying to be more inclusive with horror, I guess. Well, horror is, um, the horror fandom is rather inclusive, so I guess it's got that. It's got a leg up on comic book shit in that people aren't in there complaining about uh, gay characters and uh, black people and stuff. So horror's got that going for it, but they still worship consumer culture, so that sucks. But everyone <laughs> does, apparently. <laughs> that's all? That's it, yeah. That's, yeah. Uh... They burned down the Wendy's in Minneapolis. They looted the Target. Oh, God. No one can. No one will ever take them seriously now. I do feel, I feel bad for like the minimum wage employee has to clean up that fucking target. I just, no, I'm not showing up at that point. I'm like, <laughs> no. Actually, if I was working there and they come and start looting, taking off my target shirt, I'm looting too. Well, I think it was closed at that point, but oh, <laughs> yeah. We show up the next day and you're like, oh fuck, fuck that. Yeah, that's a reality for a lot of people though. Is they can't just quit their minimum wage job. Yes, indeed. Um, oh, here's a quote from Tom Savini. 
He says, I actually turned down Friday the 13th part two to do the burning because Jason was running around in part two. And as you know, there is no Jason. Jason was a kid that died in the first movie. If you watch the Friday the 13th movie past part one, you're stupid because there's no Jason. There shouldn't be a Jason. So uh, there you go. At the end of this movie, that woman got pulled underwater by her. So there you go, horror fans. You're stupid. That was actually Tom Savini's idea, too. But it's supposed to be a dream sequence. He just wanted to, he um, was inspired by Carrie. You know how Carrie's got like a little bit of a stinger at the end of the movie? Mm-hmm. Where she, her hands come out of her grave and it's like, whoa. Oh, maybe it'll be another zombie Carrie. Yeah, so he, he, Tom Savini is like, we should do something like that too. What if the body comes out of the water? And then, uh, I mean, it's clearly supposed to be a dream sequence, but then they made sequels. So <laughs> it's not, I guess. I don't know. I tried to look into the lore of jason to understand what the reasoning is for him isn't i swear to god like isn't his mom like use like a zombie ritual to bring him back isn't that what it, the yeah they talk about it in the fifth one or something which the fifth one does not have betsy palmer playing mrs Voorhees. uh betsy palmer thought this movie is dog shit and she was not willing to return to reprise the role here's the thing is in the movie, it's pretty straightforward, like voodoo, dark magic shit that brings Jason back and turns him into an unstoppable killing machine or whatever. And then fucking nerds that love it so much have, of course, piled on their own stupid nerd lore onto it with like comic books and bullshit like that. So now he's seen sort of like a, like a, a sort of like a wraith or a vengeful spirit, you know? I don't know. What is, he, what is he avenging? I don't know. Fucking kids having sex, learning Ugh. about sexuality. It's so it's dumb a, shit. the lamest puritanical shit in the world. Yeah, yeah that, I don't know why people are into this shit. It's fucking dumb. But yeah, they made it, managed to make it even dumber with their 100%. Sweaty the horror community. I mean, most people just like these type of like slasher movies just because of the gore effects, which is, I think, the only appreciable thing in the movie is Tom Sweeney's gore effects. There's a couple cool shots. Oh, yeah, the cinematography is not that bad, actually. Uh, but man, is it boring. It's only 90 minutes long, but it feels twice that, feels at least. Tw- <laughs> yeah, well, I was going to say three times, but that's, yeah. that's fair. Prompted by the sex of Joe... <laughs> <laughs> the sex? Wow. The success of John Carpenter's Halloween. Director Prompted by John Carpenter's sex life. He put out an advertisement to sell this film in Variety in early 1979 while Miller was still drafting the screenplay. So this is pretty cutting-edge stuff. This is like where Marvel got the idea. You know, where they come out and they're like, here's the next 20 movies we're making. We have no idea what they're about. Well, I mean, this is, at least with Marvel, they have, uh, you know, like 80 the years worth of comic books <laughs> to, to steal stories from. You know what I mean? Yeah, and also, like, they do have a good enough track record that at least when the movie comes out, it'll be, you know... Um, competent you know <laughs> this is just like oh, i got an idea you want to buy it sure do after casting the film in new york city filming took place in new jersey in the summer of 79 and then if you can believe it a bidding war ensued over the finished film but i mean why wouldn't it yeah uh, you saw that masterpiece mm-hmm. i mean pff, you when the title screen and the j and friday the 13th crashes into glass or something and Austin 316 logo. <laughs> Steve Austin comes out with shaking his head and dribbling beer everywhere, beating his wife. Stone Cold Stern is what? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Any it ended up with Paramount Pictures acquiring the film for domestic distribution, and then Warner Brothers got uh, European distribution rights. So I guess Warner Brothers short end of the stick. 
I don't know. What, how did it do in Europe is really the question. I don't know. Probably pretty good. I'm sure people like it. Yeah, there's not a lot of story, so they don't even, even know English. Uh, it was released on May 9th, 1980. It was a major box office success, grossing $59.8 million worldwide. Crazy. If you, can you know what? The it, guy uh, that went on to write uh, soap operas must really like writing soap operas because there's no way in hell I would ever write soap operas after making $59 million on this piece of shit. I mean, I, I don't, he probably got paid up, fr- paid up front, not very much money. Yeah, but I'm saying guess. they made 20 million movies after this, and he's got residuals for every one. Well, I mean, those. I don't even know if he did, he got that and the comic books the and the video games and the. Well, I I have no. I'm not for sure that he's gotten any money from that. I just know that he. I assume of, he does. I feel of, uh, I feel like Riders Guild rules. He has to be credited. That's it. Yeah, but I assume by, based on the guild rules and the union rules, that he had to get paid for it too. Yeah, but right. he could have just got paid up front for the spec script. Which is what it sounds like happened. Yeah, I don't know. Um, My guess is, uh, seemingly, I don't think it worked out that well for him. Or um, soap operas. That's my, I'm going with that. Yeah, I guess that could be it. It's a more positive way to look at it. I mean, some of those soap opera storylines must be fun to write. Remember, like, Days of Our Lives had, like, a demon (laughs) storyline? Me too. It was, like, a whole summer. Yeah. So that might have been cool to write. Plus, they have to film, like, so much and write so much they probably you'd throw whatever you want in there you'd write a fucking ridiculous shit like demons yeah if you can believe it though uh this would be shocking for you critical response was uh very divided on the film no wow so uh most people praise the film's cinematography score and performances i'll praise <laughs> the cinematography and the score not the performances i will praise the cinematography Oh, I think the score is pretty interesting. How we'll get to it in a little bit. How they use sound in the film. Uh, I think there's a couple interesting bits, but overall, I'm like, eh. well, uh, most of it. Most of what's interesting about the score is how little there is of it. So <laughs> I guess that makes sense. Um, everyone else derided it for its uh, depiction of graphic violence, which is some Tipper Gore shit, anyway. So whatever. This is 1980, Kyle. Uh, they haven't really heard of Tipper Gore yet. Yeah, but um, Tipper Gore embodies these values, right? That is the whole thing. Is she, Tipper Gore seemed out of step in like 1992 when she was like, oh, bad words and music. But 1980, fucking right in her wheelhouse. <laughs> uh, Betsy Palmer, she plays Mrs. Voorhees, celebrated dramatic actress of the 50s and 60s. Uh, she stated she would never, never would have played the role of Miss Pamela Voorhees in Friday the 13th if it had not been for the fact the that money. she was desperate desperately in need of a new car <laughs> that's what i said yeah um she lived with james dean for eight months so she was one of the studio beards he had when you say live with you mean mm. no she pretended <laughs> to be dating him <laughs> while he was actually a homosexual man <clears throat> my agent colin said how do you like to do a movie i said great because i hadn't done a movie in years california i asked no, it's going to be shot in New Jersey. And it's ten days away. New Jersey. That's where the misfits are from. Uh, it's uh, ten it's days not of Hoboken, is it? It's ten days of work. You'll make a thousand a day, but there's a catch. It's a horror film. I said, Oh no, it's bad enough I'm known as a game show player on I've Got a Secret. <laughs> I said, Send me the script. He sent it to me. I read it and I said, What a piece of shit. <laughs> no one's ever gonna see this thing. It'll come, it'll go. That's the end of it. I called and said, I'll do it. 
and that's my product story. This quote comes from her appearing at um a like Friday the Thirteenth fan thing event. So she, she probably got paid more for that fan event than she did for this fucking movie. Yeah, she also says this um on the same panel directly in like in <laughs> on the exact same panel with the man uh, we mentioned earlier, Victor Miller, who wrote the screenplay. I mean, <laughs> judging by what he thinks, he's not. He's like, yeah. <laughs> She's right. <laughs> it was a piece of shit. I just think it's funny that he's like, yeah, it's fucking garbage. And he's like, well, you know, I guess. Uh, Betsy Palmer died of natural causes on Friday, May 29th, 2015 at a hospice care center in Danbury, Connecticut. Rest you were this peace. close to saying Friday 13th. Um, Adrian King, she's Alice, the final girl. We'll see her in part two and she'll be bur- murdered immediately in the beginning. If we get to part two, man, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> The um, final girl. I always love that for horror movie uh, lingo. Yeah, I mean this Halloween and this movie basically created that trope. Fra- uh, and then like well, Halloween created it, and then Nightmare on Elm Street comes out after Friday the Thirteenth. Yeah, I know, but I, mean, I feel like those three are kind of like the ones that everybody thinks of as like the final girl. Yeah. Now, the reason she's murdered at the very beginning of part two isn't because of like any backstage like shitty situation or anything. Well, not with the studio anyways, it's a shitty situation for her. Turns out she was actually being stalked in real life by someone who was obsessed with her from seeing the first Friday the 13th. And she said, fuck this, I'm getting out of the limelight. So that sucks. Yeah, especially because yeah. I'm sure it didn't help. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, seemed like afterwards it kind of like fizzled out. But I mean, she probably that she probably ended up sacrificing her career by doing that just because of some shitty asshole. Which I guess that's the <laughs> that's female uh, experience America for you. For yeah, you. that's the woman's experience for you. Awesome. Uh, Kevin Bacon's in it. We'll see him in Footloose. We'll talk about him later <laughs> when we see Footloose. Yeah, and then um, the son of Bean Crosby, Harry Crosby, is in it. This blue boy got beat the shit out of I don't remember which character he is. It doesn't matter because they're all fucking interchangeable, except for Kevin Bacon, because he's Kevin Bacon. And if he wasn't even, Kevin honestly, Bacon, even Kevin Bacon is interchangeable with everybody else too. Yeah. I mean, you don't give Kevin Bacon the credit in this movie because he doesn't deserve it. <laughs> A New York-based firm headed by Julie Hughes and Barry Moss was hired to find eight young actors to play the camp staff members. Cunningham admits that he was not looking for great actors, but anyone that was likable and appeared to be a reasonable camp counselor. Also, people that were cheap. (laughs) And the role of Alice Hardy, our final girl, was set up as an open casting call, which was actually a publicity stunt used to attract more attention to the film. Our actress, uh, Adrienne King, actually earned, earned, and put this in air quotes, and audition primarily because she was the friend of someone working in Moss and Hughes's office. It's and, all about who you know. Yeah, Cunningham felt she embodies the qualities of Alice. What actually happened is they did an open casting call for publicity for the film, and then someone who was friends with this casting agency uh, was hired for the job. <laughs> Look, it's all about who you know. I just said that, and that's why this podcast will never take off. That's Hollywood, baby. Except for that's New Jersey, baby. <laughs> I guess New Jersey's a little bit about who you know, because isn't that where like all the um, um, mob, like, mob <laughs> and stuff hang out, and uh, also uh, police officers. Yeah, I, yeah, I remember that first Stallone movie, Copland, Copland <laughs> with Ray Liotta. 
<laughs> and Michael Rappaport. Michael Rappaport. He's he played a lot of racist characters. <laughs> Makes me uh, a little nervous about Michael Rappaport. <laughs> he does say some weird shit on the internet. Not racist <laughs> stuff though. Just like kind of weird shit. Like, to, weird about animals mostly. Yeah. Uh, original screenplay was tentative, tentatively titled "A Long Night at Camp Blood," which I don't know if there's that's like an Arl Stein goosebump style. Yeah, script. there's a plenty of um, low budget slasher movies from this time period that have like cool names like that, cool campy names like that. But um, it's like when you read names like that, it's like you know what you're in for, you know? Right. And, Friday the Thirteenth is more of a mystery. Yeah, it's like hmm, hmm. Is That's, this an anthology series? Yeah, it's Halloween's no. a holiday. Friday the Thirteenth's a holiday. <laughs> uh, um, we should write one called Arbor Day, or the trees come to life. The happening? No, That's no. I'm the, thinking more like ants. That's the happening. Remember? No, no, I'm thinking in, more like again ants, Kyle. Ants. Remember in the happening? Murder when, trees. Um, they run up to that like farmhouse, and like the double barrel shotgun peaks like slowly comes out of the house like a fucking Looney Tunes cartoon. <laughs> it straight up looks like a shot from Looney Tunes, but then it blows that kid away. <laughs> that movie's fucking wild. <laughs> I can't think of that happening now without picturing uh, Marky Mark's face just looking back and forth. Yeah. I guess oh. that's everywhere. While working on a redraft of the screenplay, Cunningham proposed the title Friday the 13th, after which Miller began redeveloping. There was two drafts? Mm-hmm. I mean, it only took him two weeks to write, so <laughs> this is pretty quick drafts. Uh, Cunningham commissioned a New York advertising agency to develop his concept of the Friday the 13th logo, which consisted of big block letters bursting through a pane of glass. Smart, I guess. Use an advertising agency. They usually know what the people like. Uh, people like to be completely dressed down about how their sexual life's not that fulfilling. <laughs> They're not as, uh, if you're a woman, you're not as, um, you don't look as young as you should. Your ovaries are shriveling up. You need makeup. If you're a man, oh, where's your hair at? Your dick's not big enough. You need more money so you can get more women and fancy cars and shit. Basically, advertising agencies know what's up, and that's uh, human beings are only concerned with their sexual viability, right? I've seen Mad Men, Kyle. I know how it works. (laughs) I haven't seen Mad Men. You haven't? I'm not going to watch a million-hour fucking AMC show about fucking (laughs) assholes in the 40s and 50s. (laughs) <laughs> it was the late 50s into the 60s oh okay oh the the, the greatest time in american history we saw exactly. last week in hairspray <laughs> i just really want to love learn about fucking don draper and his uh re- his his old rich white guy struggles the pains of being a wealthy white man oh geez uh, Miller delighted in inventing a serial killer who t- turned out to be somebody's mother, a murderer whose only motivation was her love for a child. So uh, th- my question for this is the entire time she's making those noises, right? Because that's the only way it makes sense. No, that's not actually taking place in the movie. I know. It's supposed to be um, like part of the soundtrack, but yeah, still. that's the score. Because later on, every that that's supposed to be Jason, you know, stalking people, right? It's not diegetic music. I think I don't know when it switches from being the score to being within the realm of the within the actual world of the film. I don't know. I'm not familiar familiar enough with the sequels. I've seen them all <laughs> multiple times, but I don't remember which one's which. The only thing I remember is the cool um, boxer guy in. Ah, I was going to say that's one thing I remember is Jason versus Manhattan. Yeah, he gets his head up, cut it off, and it's like. I remember Stupid that one um, and Freddy versus Jason pretty well. 
And then I also remember Fred or uh, Jason goes to hell when uh, uh, the autopsy, the coroner eats Jason's heart. <laughs> oh yeah, I remember that now too. Oh, I remember Jason. We should watch every uh, Friday the 13th movie and critique them. What's the Jason X, the one in space? I remember they had the um, oh, yeah. oh, the android no. where her nipples fall off. Because they're magnets? Yeah, that was awesome. That's stupid. some good shit. So stupid. I love that shit. That's good. I kind of like the frank juvenile sexuality of these films. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> like, sex is bad, okay? Uh, no, not that aspect of it. I just like I just focus on not there not being any moralizing in the movie in any way, and it's just kids having fun. Oh, but there actually is moralizing. Oh, is there? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm about to blow your mind eventually. This is uh, um, I'm building suspense for later on in the episode where I will shock you and reveal that maybe that's not the case. Well, you're probably gonna give me some shit about what the writer said, but he's full of shit, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> Speaking of what some shit the writer said, he said, I took motherhood and turned it on its head, and I think that was great fun. Miss Voorhees Ow. was the mother I'd always wanted, a mother who would have killed for her kids. Oh. I think so most- his mom was a piece of shit is what he just said. Yeah, well, because that's the thing is, I think most mothers would kill for their kids. <laughs> we just talked about last week how um, if we were in Bret Hart's shoes, we might kill Vince McMahon. Yeah. I can't the- Im- <laughs> That's the thing is, like, it's, you know when you have to explain to people... Um, you know, people talk shit about uh, immigrants coming to the United States, right? And you try to explain to them, like, fucking, you know, if if your options were your kids was going to be forced into a gang, killed, raped, left in the street, all sorts of shit, or making a fucking thousand mile trek barefoot to a country that doesn't want you, which one do you think you're going to fucking do? Uh, they're both awful choices. Yeah, but you're going to do the one where you might survive. And at this point, <laughs> I don't know which one that is. Yeah, I guess that's a good point too. But anyway, no, I mean, I get it. Like, the, the actually, point there are two is, shitty um, points, choices, and um, like there was really not a lot of difference between how most of our ancestors came to America and how you know Guatemalans. Uh, yeah, everyone's just fleeing a shitty situation. Uh, I guess the larger point is when I when you express that to someone, you're trying to get them to empathize and realize, oh, we need immigration reform. And actually, I don't know if we need immigration reform so far as we uh, don't need any immigration policy at all. Come on in. No borders. Eh, I mean, with some immigration policy, I guess, but come on. It's, you, we're way too draconian. We'll take care of the bad apples, with if us. there are any. With, by pooping on them. <laughs> the idea of Jason appearing at the end of the film was initially not used in the original script, but in Miller's final draft, the film, or in Miller's final draft, the film ended with Alice merely floating on the lake peacefully and then jason's appearance was actually suggested by suggested by tom savini you dumb bastard brought up earlier and they were like hmm money you're saying which one is the one where jason is a kid is the second one yeah the second one has flashbacks to him being a kid oh i could have sworn there was one where he actually the actual killer was jason as a kid oh i don't know about that one you sure you're not thinking of rob zombie's halloween remake i'm pretty sure i'm not (laughs) i'm like 100 sure i'm not but i Rob Zombie's Halloween. But I don't remember remake. the Friday the Thirteenth movies very well, so maybe I'm just thinking of the flashbacks. Yeah, the Rob Zombie's Halloween remake. The first like hour and a half is all him as a kid. <laughs> Fuck, it sucks. I've right, never now, actually seen that. I've never seen uh, his Halloween remake, so I couldn't tell you. There's a lot of people getting killed by having their heads stepped on. Rob Zombie's into that, I guess. I don't know. 
or not even stepped on, just having their heads popped. Because there's a scene where Mike Myers like pops someone's head, where he stops on someone's head. He like pummels someone's head into pulp. He just he just really into like you know popping heads. <laughs> All right, let's talk about this uh, soundtrack now. Man, I don't care about this movie. Uh, Harry Manfredini began working on the music score, and the decision was made to only play music when the killer was actually present so as not to manipulate the audience. Isn't that manipulative in itself, though? Yeah, but I guess it's like reverse manipulation from what was a common tactic at the time and then continues to be a common tactic since then. Uh, Manfredini pointed out the lack of music for certain scenes. There's a scene where one of the girls is setting up the archery area. One of the guys shoots an arrow into the target and just misses her. It's a huge scare. But if you notice, there's no music. That was a choice. <gasps> yeah, most of the choices. Also, um, that was a real arrow that was shot next to her. The man who did the shooting, Tom Savini. That's <laughs> right. He's really good with the bone arrow. <laughs> Not like, was, did you that see that <laughs> fucking bum ass Cletus at the protest oh, in Salt Lake shit. City that screamed all lives matter as he tried to shoot a bow and arrow at the protesters did you see some motherfucker stab a dude with a sword that fucking piece of shit god damn white people are a mistake yeah they fuck up uh, so here's where the um, you know the Jason sound comes from so uh, Mrs. Voorhees appears on screen only during the final scenes of the film. So Manfredini, the composer, had the job of creating a score that would represent the killer in her absence. So he borrows from Jaws, where um, mm-hmm. likewise, you don't get to see Bruce until the end of the movie. But the film has a, a sound motif that John Williams, of course, crafted with great care by John Williams. It cued the audience to the shark's invisible, invisible menace, which is, yeah, you know, Sharky, it works way Sharky, better Sharky. in Jaws than it does in Friday the 13th. Yeah, it sounds a lot cooler. <laughs> so uh, he, he's like, you know what? I should copy that. The same way this film is a copy of Halloween, I'll copy Jaws. So while listening to a Christoph Penderecki piece of music, which contained a chorus with the striking pronunciations, Manfredini, Manfredini was inspired to recreate a similar sound. He came up with the sound... For the final reel, when Miss Voorhees arrives and is reciting Kill Her Mommy, Manfredini says, everyone thinks it's cha-cha-cha. I'm like, cha-cha-cha? What are you talking about? Yeah, so he, uh, the, the, the kid sound from Kill and the ma sound from Mommy, he chopped, he chopped and screwed him, basically, and turned it into mama. So that's pretty cool. I think that is pretty interesting. Manfredini seems like a pretty cool guy. Um, I don't know what else he did. I think he just did Jason movies, but right on, man. It's not quite as good as Jaws, but you know, <clears throat> most things aren't. <laughs> Especially Jaws two, Jaws three, or Jaws the Revenge. <laughs> the Revenge, Piranha though. The first Piranha directed by James Cameron, magnifique, just as good as Jaws. <laughs> Speaking of Airplane, which we mentioned earlier, because the writer Victor Miller wanted to write it or something like it. Uh, of the 17 films distributed in by Paramount in 1980, only one Airplane returned more profits than Friday the 13th. That's cool. I didn't realize Airplane was such a um, financial success. Airplane, number one comedy of all time. All right, let's talk about, let's hear some other people talk about how much this movie sucks. You ready? What does Ebra have to say? Oh, okay. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Siskel and Ebert did not like this one. We had a very, uh, had a sort of a, a very uh, a, a moral reaction to it. They actually come across. I'm, turning, I'm 
I'm turning uh, around on Ebert. He might be right, but we'll see what he does. <laughs> no, nah, they come across as little bitchy babies. Uh, well, yeah. well hey, Ebert wrote a movie that was pretty weird. What? Silence of the Lambs? <laughs> no, that wasn't his. It's been years since I've seen it, but... Oh, he did write Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Oh, interesting. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. No, I'm thinking of Beneath the Valley of Ultra Vixens. I don't fucking remember. I have what? To look it up. <laughs> yeah, I really would have to. I really have to sit down and read, go through his dime or his uh, Wikipedia article because he wrote a weird fucking movie. What's it? Uh, let's see. Beyond yeah. the Valley of the Dolls. Up. up beneath the Valley of the Ultra Vixens. Beneath the Valley of the Ultra Vixens. Oh, oh I, he did it under a pen name too. The Nom de Plume. I think I'm thinking of Who Killed Bambi. No, that's that one that got produced. This is short, short film. I don't remember. I really, it's just too late in the day for me. I wasn't prepared for, to remember Roger Ebert's writing career. What? Here's the synopsis. Also, fucking, hold on. This is a synopsis for Beneath the Valley of the Ultra Vixens, okay? Believe it or not, even in small town USA, there are still people who are unfulfilled and unrelieved in the midst, midst of plenty. Lavana and Lamar could have the perfect relationship if it were not for Lamar's obsession with rear entry. <laughs> and um, this film is directed by a famous pornographer, Russ Meyer, who we talked about last week because John Waters is a big fan of Russ Meyer. I know I couldn't. I don't. I, I honestly can't believe you didn't know Roger Ebert did this shit. I had no idea. Well, it's all he did write it under a nom de plume as R Hyde, so people wouldn't know it was him. I'm curious to see what he said about this fucking movie and why it's so moralistic. All right, what what are, what are the the, the critics? Oh, uh, Variety deemed the film low budget in the worst sense, with no apparent talent or intelligence. Offset its technical inadequacies. Friday the Thirteenth has nothing to exploit but its title. Many critics compared the film unfavorably, unfavorably against John Carpenter's Halloween, including Mike Hughes, who writes the film copies everything that is that is except the quality of Halloween concluding that the lowest point of the movie comes near the end when it exploits the genuine grief and madness of the villain. By then, things simply aren't fun anymore. And the film's most vocal detractor was Gene Siskel, in, who in his review called Cunningham one of the most despicable creatures ever to infest the movie business. Wow. That's a uh, harsh criticism. He also uh, published the address for Charles uh, Bludorn, the chairman of the board at Gulf Western, which owned Paramount, as well as Betsy Palmer's home city and encouraged fellow detractors to write them and express their contempt for the film. Oh, wow. He's an early doxer. Yeah. Attempting to convince people not to see it. He even gave away the ending during the uh, televised review that him and Roger Ebert did or whatever. <laughs> what sort of fucking giveaway? Yeah, I mean, whatever. <laughs> Uh, Siskel and Roger Ebert spent an entire episode of their TV show berating the film and other slasher films of the time because they felt it would make audiences root for the killer. Oh, it's got POV shot. People are going to think they're the killer. Oh, they go oh. killer. You know what? They're actually kind of right because people do root for the killer in those fucking movies. Like, if you think about it, people are fans of Jason and, and Freddy, not of any of their victims. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I don't think they're fans of the pathology or the act of killing specifically. I believe most people are just interested in the gore effects. I think that might be true for some people. I assume most people. Well, you're right, because um, I know there's uh, the guy that did um, the he did, the guy that created Cheddar Goblin for Mandy, the guy that did the puppet. Mm-hmm. He does a lot of like uh, uh, gore effects and puppetry and stuff for movies, but he also had a side business where he was doing like a uh, 
um, pornography that involved like uh, horror elements. So like, but zombie stuff. But it was done for like camp reasons, right? Sure. But then he eventually started to get requests from people that were like very specifically about the violence of it. So yeah, there are of course a few people that are I maybe into uh, the the the. the the uh, darker elements of the situation, but I believe I, don't know, I just I'm think it says something it's... about humanity, or maybe in the American psyche in general, that like the two most popular are are, are seem to be Freddie and and Jason, and they are the ones that most seem to correlate with like you know sex. Yeah, that might have to do with the weird attitudes about sexuality that the United States. Oh, has for sure, that's part of it. Yeah. Um, but I don't think people. Uh, my guessing guess would be the percentage of people that like these horror movies and um, have the potential to be serial killers and root for the killing and sort of thing would probably be pretty similar to like what the national average would be if there's a way for us to calculate it. You know what I mean? I don't think overall people are like, "Oh, I love when the women die." <laughs> no, I don't necessarily mean that. Um, I just think that they. Uh... I don't know how to put it. They enjoy it more than I I do. Maybe. Um, I always like the uh, murders and slasher films, and I, I like violence in movies. Um, these ones specifically. And I guess maybe there's I'm a couple just, good. I like some of the like the cool gore effects. That's yeah, good. but that's like what I uh, too. And there's a couple in this movie, but like if you really think about it, there's the Friday Thirteenth as a whole is not. There's not a lot of cool gore effects. Oh no! It it's stops really being, popular. It stops being really inventive after this one. Well, no, maybe the second one's all right for, as far as like the gore effects go, but yeah, it's like not um, anything special about it after that. But it, I think it just became so mainstream. It's you know what people look to for this style of film. While there's obviously tons of better ones, maybe ones that aren't as competently made but have more interesting effects, which is what I'm interested in. Uh, let's see where are we at here uh, we're at Cisco and Ebert oh yeah they've, they're little babies about it little puss babies uh, contemporary consensus so it does have a 63% on Rotten Tomatoes the consensus on there is uh, rather quaint by today's standards Friday the 13th still has its share of bloody surprises and a 70s holdover aesthetic to slightly compel but yeah that's the thing is it doesn't have like that um sort of uncomfortable sweaty snuff film quality that like texas chainsaw massacre has or um last house on the left or the hills have eyes so it's like i don't know i honestly don't understand why this one friday the 13th was such a success and why it continued to be a success because all it did is take elements from better horror films and not do them as well but it took the elements that people like tits and ass I really think that it, it has a well, some part. Well, I guess that. yeah. The so part of it is it is like um they also take inspiration from Meatballs, right? Which is a boner comedy from like nineteen seventy eight. So yeah, I guess the incorporation of the horror elements and then the boner shit. That's like oh man, this is just the perfect storm for teenagers in the eighties, right? Uh, Jeremiah, solved it again. <clears throat> Jeremiah Kipp of Slant Magazine in 2009 said, the murderer turns out to be a middle-aged woman named Ms. Voorhees, played by Betsy Palmer, with a butch haircut and a gigantic bulky sweater, whose line reading are akin to nails on a chalkboard and a predilection for speaking to herself in the mincing voice of her dead child. <laughs> Only in the last 20-minute appearance of the scene stealing Harpy, 
not to mention the memorable cameo by her rotting zombie son that Friday the 13th becomes Friday the 13th 13th 14th becomes memorable as high camp first half of this guy's quote is like I don't know why he's dressing down Bessie Palmer so much uh, they tried to make her look bulky, so the, the scenes, every other scene, there was actually footage of a man chasing <laughs> the camp counselors, you know, would be possible. I don't know. Anyhow, I don't know why he's being such a weirdo about that, but I do agree with the, the last part here where he says, uh, uh, much like, well, no, never mind. I, I was going to say much like Sleepaway Camp, but no, Sleepaway Camp has fucking high camp all throughout the movie, fucking perfection. Friday the 13th just has um, like no spirit, no craft, and then approaches like high camp at the very end, like he says. Up until then, it's just like, yep, Halloween. Yep, there's a murder going yep. on. And uh, Scott Meslow of the Week reviewed the film in 2015, assessing its original cr- critical reception in a contemporary context. Before it became an absurdly prolific franchise, Friday the 13th was a cynical one-off attempt to make a fast buck on a sleazy slasher movie that accidentally ended up spawning a decade-spanning multi-million dollar phenomenon. What's most striking about Friday the 13th is how little regard anyone but its fans seem to have for it. Yeah, because it's a piece of shit. It's trash. That's true of a, a lot of... Um... That's all cult cinema, really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, the people that are fans of this particular cult film are wrong. <laughs> I am right. <laughs> Other cult films are amazing. <laughs> Anything fucking John Carpenter made, perfectly fine. Everything else that you like, fucking stupid. Fucking Jason memorabilia and shit, stupid. The Witch, awesome. Give me all the fucking Black Phillip merchandise you have. <laughs> I, Black Phillip, Black <laughs> Phillip. I actually only own one piece of Black Phillip merchandise, and it was a gift. So I'm going to buy you a black goat for your birthday. Hell yeah. I want the goat that was using the film. Apparently he was no, a major he's a dick. Yeah, he's a major dick. <laughs> I like weird shit. Um, I want to talk about the end of this movie for like two seconds and just how, how many chances Alice had to, to just kill Mrs. Voorhees and end it. And she's constantly just running away screaming. At least three times she knocked Mrs. Voorhees down yeah. and killed her. Well, that's my problem with the ending, too, is um, she's uh, throughout the movie before we know it's Mrs. Voorhees, they're an unstoppable killing machine, right? And then um, then it is Mrs. Voorhees, and uh, she's still just uh, an old woman. <laughs> right. I think they sh- they could have still just made her very powerful because of that, that rage she has, right? You know? Like maybe she, you know, I don't know. Do something. Don't just be like, ah, oh, surprise! It's an old woman, and she is an old woman. I don't know how <laughs> she killed all the other people. <laughs> how did she get that dude into a tree? <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, okay, I guess. All right, time to talk about the elephant in the room, which we mentioned already. The weird puritan- puritanical oh. sexual morality that's at play in this film, and uh, Halloween. Halloween was accused of it as well. Uh, I mean, I don't necessarily even see it in Halloween because I don't feel like, I don't know, it's been a while since I saw Halloween, but I don't feel like it necessarily played on like, they were having sex and so my boy drowned and now everyone has to die for it. Well, let's take a look at what film critic Timothy Sherry notes in his book, Teen Movies, American Youth on Screen. Ooh, that's a fancy title. Yeah, I'm going to pick up this book. It sounds interesting. 
But anyways, he says that where Halloween introduced a more subtle sexual curiosity within its morbid moral lesson, films such as Friday the 13th capitalized on the reactionary aspect of teen sexuality, slaughtering wholesale those youth who deigned to cross the threshold of sexual awareness. Which, um, yeah, seems like that's what it's about, right? It's like, oh, you, if you do bad sex, bad thing happened to you. Which is kind of like, um, that's what it follows, sis. <laughs> <laughs> But the problem with this is uh, if there's any teens out there listening, if you feel comfortable with your partner and you feel safe and secure about it, you're comfortable with yourself, uh, sex rules. Wrap Have all up. the sex you want. Oh, yeah, Wrap make sure. Yeah, don't get anyone pregnant or anything. You don't want to deal with that as a kid. But sex rules. Have sex. It's perfectly fine. Don't worry about it. Except, you know, maybe Jason or his mom will fucking cut you in half. Nah, those people aren't real. All you have in real life is... Uh, <laughs> you don't know that, Kyle. You, you just... <laughs> Fucking weird. Yeah, they could be out there. It's for you know, you've never been to Camp Crystal Lake. That's true. I've never been to summer camp. It seems like a place where like a weird, a weird rich white white weirdos go. So I don't know if I'm really into it. <laughs> it seems like we 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 go to be molested by someone with a mustache. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't think I'm into it. And ba- yeah, on sleepaway camp, remember they're doing that prank where they did a sit up into another kid's ass. What was that about? That was wild. <laughs> yeah, summer camps. I, I don't think that's the place for me. They also didn't. Uh, You're a little old for it now, but none of the summer camps I saw had basketball courts. So if I'm gonna go out there and play tennis or badminton every day. I don't fucking think so. <laughs> you can go uh, go out and swim and uh, ride the worm. I do fucking love swimming. I get sunburnt too. I was thinking when I go to the the protests next time we have one in Phoenix. I think there might be one tomorrow, but I'll see how it pans out. I gotta wait until the sun starts to go down. I mean solidarity. I'm with you, everyone, but um, I'm also really white. I got, like, a red beard and shit. Like, that's how white I am. <laughs> I can't be out in the sun too long. So I got to wait for it to go down. You just also wear, like, uh, suntan lotion. It was also, also 112 degrees today. Yeah, like, <laughs> Yeah. It, it's hot out there for, for, for a pimp. Mm-hmm. Oh, that ends um, your uncle's talking about the weather. So now <laughs> let's continue on with our, our discussion about sexuality in film. Our director, Sean S. Cunningham, doesn't buy the whole sinners must be punished scenario that many slasher films seem to support. Instead, he simply sees it as bad things happening to good people for no apparent reason. Cunningham, hmm. Cunningham also didn't like Gene Siskel's complaint that the film was misogynistic and that Cunningham is a little tougher on the girls in this movie than he is on the guys. In response, Cunningham said the film is not meant to be sexist, and both male and females get punished equally in this movie. John oh yeah, Carpenter, I don't remember seeing any mandics. I mean, I don't know if you like. That's the thing is, if you can get away with showing a dick, show it. But I don't know how often <laughs> they let you get away with showing or dicks. a butt even. Yeah. They showed plenty of tits. Give Did me they? an ass. They, I, I feel like I saw two or three pairs. No, I think we. It was only the one girl that had sex with uh, Kevin Bacon, right? I thought it was. I thought oh, it was no, the other girl in the shower, maybe. Yeah, I don't remember these. I don't know. All these eighty movies, eighties movies, follow the same formula. For titillation goes. That's the fucking <laughs> titillation. So, like, um, I do think not that this is a primary agenda that I have in life, but movies are kind of soft when it comes to sexuality. It's nowadays, right? There's basically everything is completely devoid of any sexuality, which just seems like fucking weird. But everything is still ultra violent and shit because it's the American way. So I do think there needs to be a little touch of sexuality in film a little bit more. 
But that said, um, it's fucking never like real in movies. You know what I mean? Like it's always just fucking like I'm gonna lay on top of you and this is how people have sex. Right? <laughs> not even like <laughs> raised off of the woman or anything. You know what I mean? Like not yeah, even, I'm just gonna slam our bodies into each other. Not even like obviously the missionary <laughs> position sucks. I don't think most people use the missionary position. That's some weird shit, anyways. But like, even if you're gonna do it, like it's not. I'm gonna lay directly on top of you. Here you go. Support my 200 pounds. And then when we're done, let's pull the covers up to our neck and talk. Yeah, that shit's weird. Like fucking, I've, I ain't never seen no one hit it from behind in a movie. God damn it. <laughs> Anyhow, oh, actually, you know what? Uh, Munich. Oh yeah, that's true. Oh, yeah, also uh, out Spielberg. Actually, Love Actually, when it's but they're simulating sex to as oh, stand-ins shit. for simulated sex in a film. It's very meta. But you see it. Oh, I guess I'm more of a a, um, a Russ Meyer sort of fan <laughs> than I am a Sean S. Cunningham, Cunningham fan. Do I have a movie for you? It's written by him and <laughs> Roger Ebert. <laughs> I'm actually going to go find it after this. Uh, let's see here. Uh, John Carpenter was similarly dismissive when critics complained that Hollywood was, Hollywood was pushing an Old Testament puritanical sex must be punished by death moral code on the audience. Well, I mean, again, I'm not saying Halloween is, but Friday the 13th kind of is. Seems um, kind of straightforward Friday the 13th, right? I mean, maybe it's, t- it's certainly played a little bit f- for like tongue-in-cheek purposes, right? But Is it? I don't know if the, there's like any actual... like. Um, uh, intentional humor in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe I'm giving it too much. Yeah, I, I, I'm kind I of thinking even, more of a the series as a whole. But yeah, this yeah. even this first one I don't think it has like any like layers to it at all. That's why I'm I'm also like you know maybe it wasn't intentional for this to happen for it to become like a sexual morality play. It was like because he wrote in two weeks. He's probably just like the maybe his own puritanical guilt about sex was translated into <laughs> not that he actually intended to there to be a moral lesson in the film it was just like um subconsciously he was just writing it out that way um anyhow deborah hill who is the co-producer and screenwriter on halloween has also said in response to critics i think people are reading moral and sociological messages into a simple horror, horror story that has no agenda to lecture the audience in any way um, which uh, that might be a little bit of a cop out. I don't know. She's the one who wrote it though. So I guess she wins. And then uh, film critic, Gene Siskel was notoriously prudish and dismissive about horror films. He rarely, rarely if ever gave horror f- movies, good reviews. He didn't like Jaws or aliens and he even gave silence of the lambs, a bad review. That's a direct quote from like Wikipedia or something. Had I arranged that last sentence, I would have been like, yeah, he didn't like silence of the lambs, but whatever. But he didn't like Jaws or Aliens. <laughs> so, <laughs> Silence of the Lambs is um, fucking completely geared to towards the, the fucking academy and the general public and shit, you know? Whereas Jaws and Aliens were success successes despite their um, being heavily genre film inspired. So shut up, everyone. Only listen to me about movies. <laughs> uh yeah so my feeling on it is like i said there's not enough depth to friday the 13th for me to even believe that the morality of the situation is a conscious choice uh we didn't um those all those quotes i just read though were from sean cunningham who directed the film not the miller who wrote the film though so someone might ask him and he'll be like yeah fuck those dumb fucking kids having sex Sex is bad. Never have sex for marriage. 
<laughs> I hate sex. I've never had it. <laughs> and all honestly, I think um, there was not enough thought put into the movie for there to even accidentally be um, a moral tale in it. I really do think it is just like, here's some shit happening and we need to have sex and murder in it. Find a way to do it. And he's like, okay. <laughs> this uh, kid dies because of sex, so murder because sex. Got it. Perfect. <laughs> I mean, again, like I'm not saying it has to be intentional, but that kind of is like the overarching, and, and yeah, then it goes, and then on, it goes to, on to inspire other <laughs> films, yeah, and a whole genre of uh, Jason films, really. Well, speaking of contemporary scholars in film criticism, such as Tony Williams, have credited Friday the Thirteenth for initiating the subgenre of the stalker or slasher film. Uh, truth of it, though, actually, is they're just um, uh, bad American versions of Italian giallo films. Uh, we will be watching a Giallo film when we get closer to Halloween. And it will be a Giallo film made by the true master of horror, Dario Argento. Oh. Who, by the way, hated the Suspiria remake, so I'm in good company. I don't care that Quentin Tarantino liked it. The original's better. It didn't need to be remade. <laughs> <laughs> There's no crazy fucking electronic organ music made by Goblin. Not everything's in bright primary colors with psychedelic shit. Why the fuck would you make Suspiria and then just make it like every other fucking horror movie that comes out every, every other goddamn year? You're right. Horror movies are whack. I don't even care <laughs> about them anymore. Because <laughs> I, I knew about <laughs> stupid Suspiria. I feel like we should talk about the scariest horror movie of all time. The Birds. Uh, cultural critic Graham Thompson also considers the film considers the film as a template, along with John Carpenter's Halloween, that instigated a rush of films of its type, in which young people away from supervision are systematically stalked and murdered by a mass villain. Yeah, it's really just uh, giallo films with the uh, American s- sort of uh, sensibilities applied to it. So instead of it being like sexy Italian news reporter being stalked by leather glove killer and everything's sexy and pulpy, it's a uh, bunch you know, of dumb teenagers. Yeah, small town stupid babysitters fucking getting killed or some shit. And calls come from the house. I don't know, Black Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> we should talk about the best character in this movie. And it's oh shit! The dog <laughs> at the gas station. I think Black Christmas is a Canadian film, but whatever. I know Canada tries to act like they're the shit too, but nah. I'm on to you, Canada. You're just like the United States. <laughs> the slightly nicer version. Slightly. Yeah, I mean, that's the game they play, but I don't know how factually true it is. No, I, I believe 100% they are nicer, but not that much nicer. <sighs> uh, while critical reception of the film has been uh, varied in the years since the release, it has attained a significant cult following. Yeah, of what I like to call sheeple. <laughs> <laughs> White horror nerds on the internet. <laughs> white nerd, what have you learned? Yeah, I'm uh, pretty opposed to white nerds for being um, arguably a white nerd, but you know that's yeah, me how too, it goes. I guess. That's how you go. How it goes when you have um, a strong sense of ethics and you have a strong sense of responsibility to others. That's when I say, throw down your Funko Pop figures, you consumer whores. It's time we take to the streets and build a more just and equitable society for all of us. I, they alluded to Target. I know they have Funko Pops. Man, I hope they melted them all <laughs> into a giant molten plastic bubble. Uh, check this out, though. In 2017, Complex ranked the film ninth in a list of the best slasher films of all time. I mean, I guess in the list of best slasher films, maybe. 
I don't knife. I I could think. How of many like, more? There's not. There's only. There's maybe ten great slasher films. I guess you can give Friday the Thirteenth. It really depends depends on how you define slasher. Is Nightmare on Elm Street mm. a slasher film? Yeah, I think that would be included. In my opinion. I feel weird including that, but it is a little bit more psychological though, huh? And also supernatural, huh? Hmm. I guess it depends on what else is on the list. If you get like really specific in the terms of what a slasher movie is. Then I guess it ends up being ninth because there's probably only like ten of them anyways. Yeah, and it's like, could you include all the Giallo movies? Because if you could, then they were better than every slash movie except for Halloween. Well, you can't include and those for Americans. Sleepaway Camp. <laughs> yeah, Sleepaway Camp. <laughs> Sleepaway Camp rules. Uh, as of 2018, Friday the 13th has spawned ten sequels, including the crossover film with Freddy Krueger. They did a reboot, uh, reboot to Friday the 13th, uh, which was released theatrically in February 2018 or 2009 uh with freddie versus jason writers damian shannon and mark swift hired to script the new film uh as you recall i mentioned previously that the original friday the 13th has a 63 percent on rotten tomatoes and is already a terrible film correct <laughs> yeah i think so well this remake has a score of 26 percent uh, so i was gonna try to watch the remake and then i said nope i don't even like the original fuck it <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, I have not seen the remake. Um, I'm assuming it has Jason in it and not his mom. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Um, there's no way they would release a Jason movie now without Jason in it. I, I did kind of like the Jason vs. Freddy movie, but it was because it was so fucking campy. Yeah, I don't remember it. I remember we rented it when it came out. That's how long ago it came out. There's there's still long, they still have, you still like rent DVDs and shit. Right? <laughs> yeah, it was like 2005. Yeah. It was a while ago. Though technically well-constructed, Friday the 13th is a series rehash that features little to distinguish it from its predecessors. And the, the predecessors aren't very good, so <laughs> I don't want to watch something that just does it all again. Producers, <laughs> One of them, he goes to space, though. That's true. I, get, I think I've actually somehow seen that one the most. Oh, I know exactly why it is. Remember previously I mentioned how... Uh, at uh, one time, I was living with my girlfriend, and like for some reason, all we had was Showtime. So I just <laughs> ended up watching. I started ended up watching a lot of movies over and over again. Yeah, Jason X, the one in space, was on Showtime that summer, so I, I watched it quite a few times. Um, anyhow, uh, producer Steve Miner, who actually that's the guy Steve Miner went on to direct most of the sequels. Uh, he initially thought it was an idiotic, idiotic idea to bring Jason back in sequels. He said he wasn't your villain. He's just a figment of someone's imagination. Despite this, he went on to direct the next two Friday the 13th movies starring Jason as a villain. Why do you think he did that? Money, please. Oh, so check it out. Um, this is a completely uh, little side story to Friday the 13th that I find interesting. And I will explain to you why. But first, I will read the pertinent information. Academy Award nominee Penelope Milford was fresh off her Oscar nomination when she was offered the role of Brenda, which is one of the camp counselors who appears in the very beginning of the movie. The producer stopped because she was such a big name at the time that people would show up to see her and Academy Award winner Estelle Parsons in the film. The producers also suspected that people would expect them to survive being the two, fam- two most famous members of the cast. Therefore, they both were to play characters who died, shocking the audience. When Milford declined the role, Parsons bowed out shortly thereafter. So the original intent was for that opening scene where you see the first two camp counselors being killed. 
for them to be two very famous actors. So I've been shocking to the audience. For oh, them. man. Uh, Wes Craven stole this for Scream. Yeah. That's exactly what I wanted to bring up. That's wild, right? Because that was the big thing about Scream when it came out. Is, uh, it was uh, Drew Barrymore's like big return to the scene sort of thing. She'd kind of fallen off from, uh, I guess, what you would say being um, abused by the, the Hollywood Right, being forced to take drugs and party with adults and shit as a young girl. Yeah, well, abused by Hollywood shit. and her her parents did. Yeah, uh, but um, she did manage to turn it around, and she showed up looking gorgeous and healthy and scream, and everyone was like, "Oh hell yeah, Drew Barrymore is back!" And then, shockingly, after an extended opening scene, which is possibly Good. one of the best opening scenes of a horror film of all time, she ends up dead. Spoilers. I mean, if you haven't seen Scream yet, you're a fucking loser. Don't listen to my podcast. <laughs> I was listening to someone else the other day. Is like on Twitch or some shit was talking like, look at your numbers, man. You got to start being nicer to everybody in your audience. You know, respect them. Blah, blah, blah. You got to keep your numbers up. Blah. Fuck that shit. I ain't doing that shit. If you haven't watched Scream, get the fuck out of here, loser. Come back talk to me later when you have seen Scream. Shit. If you think it was a bad idea to <laughs> explode a police station in Minnesota, then oh yeah this podcast yeah, get, right definitely get the fuck out of here that's more important than scream yeah if you don't think if if the state's willing to kill you you should be willing to kill the state if you don't believe that get the fuck out of my face oh also because the camp was closed during filming and, and situated in the deep in jersey woods the cast and crew didn't see much outside interference but it turned out they had a very famous neighbor that's right lou reed who owned a farm nearby <laughs> That's uh, uh, we got to watch Lou Reed play for free right in front of us while we were making the film. Sound man Richard Murphy said he came by the set and we hung around with each other. And he was just a really great guy. Um, so this is '79. I guess he probably wouldn't be all fucked up on heroin anymore by then, huh? No, I think he was doing okay in '79. Yeah, because this is even after the like um, the Bowie period. Oh yeah, 79. yeah. So he's probably like he's probably doing all right in '79. Yeah, it's probably just a. Regular old Lou Reed with that. He's like, hey, man, take a walk on the regular side. Take a walk on the upstate New Jersey side. <laughs> Except for his voice got a lot crazier when he got older. I guess from heroin, <laughs> cigarettes. Heroin, cigarettes. Heroin, cigarettes. I keep one. I'm hoping my voice is going to be more like um, Tom Waits as I age. That's why I keep like drinking whiskey and smoking cigarettes. But it doesn't seem to be helping me at all. It just makes it so I can't breathe as well. <laughs> well, that's all I got for Friday the 13th. Um, I basically said it all at the beginning of the episode, though. This movie fucking sucks. Uh, I'm, I give a lot of leeway to um, camp films from the 80s. Of course, that's kind of what this podcast is about. That's kind of my aesthetic. That's my scene. I like uh, cult films. I like camp horror shit. I like... Um, butts and i can't so, lie. yeah i like i like 80s butts in films i like getting titties out i like um practical effects that look ridiculous i like um i don't know i like the weird 80s shit i don't think it's like novel or groundbreaking but um there's a specific aspect of films in the 80s i don't think you see today uh, where even though it was a low budget film and maybe they knew it wasn't going to be successful. There was amount of like care and craft that still went into everything they were making that has the people don't do anymore. Like you were talking about the shitty horror movies that come out now. Like there's not 
no one's putting in any earnest effort into those movies. And uh, Friday the 13th, the original, same thing. Tom Savini obviously was putting in earnest work for the gore effects. But everything else about it just seems like a heartless cash grab. So I guess this was cutting edge at the time because they predated the modern horror films where they don't give a fuck about anything. But uh, I don't think it deserves to be in the pantheon of amazing horror films the way it is. Uh, It's a very successful commercial property, but that means very little to me. I mean, so, people do hold it up like it's Halloween or, or, or Nightmare on Elm Street. And it's not. Not even close. I mean, I, haven't, I hadn't watched the original one in quite a long time. I think I said it best last week when you told me we were going to watch this. And I said, oh, boring. boring. Yeah. And uh, I was like, no, no way. It'll be all right. I didn't say it on the podcast, but that was what my thinking was. But then about 20 minutes into it, I was like, nah, this is going to suck. The thing is, like, it feels like it could make a really okay episode for like an anthology series for like a horror show but anything outside of 45 minutes i don't care here's the thing there's elements in it that definitely did go on to inspire other movies that i like more so i guess you could oh you can applaud it a little bit for it being groundbreaking on those fronts like the setting of a summer camp and um the final girls rope even though that is basically pretty misogynistic and maybe outdated or whatever, but it is an interesting uh, trope or concept that was perpetuated in horror films for a little bit. Um, Having like other archetypal characters, like this movie has like a jokey prankster character, right? Well, that starts to become very prevalent in other horror films following it. So it it did, uh, I guess for good or for ill, depending on your opinion, it was uh, inspirational to other filmmakers, but is any of that shit really that important? And would would not have some better filmmaker come along eventually and uh, had a funny guy in their movie, their horror movie, anyways. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, because like, it's like the it's like the, um, the idea of having blowing. interesting ensemble cast is, yeah. is some mind blowing new concept, revolutionary to horror and horror alone. Yeah, and then uh, based on Halloween, getting the same uh, you know uh, criticisms that. Friday the 13th did anyways well the the final girl shit already came from Halloween anyways the slasher stalker aspect already came from Halloween so I mean what did Friday the 13th really do except for summer camp the prankster character (laughs) that's all it's got and they kill a snake on screen that snake wasn't doing anything he's just sneaking around sometimes even if snakes aren't venomous it does suck if they bite you yeah I mean it, it doesn't feel good yeah, but I don't think it would make me kill them. One time my girlfriend had a snake. I mean, not one time. One time this girl and I dated for a year and a half, two years, and she had a snake, and I used to sleep with a snake and stuff. One time a snake bit me because I probably like, rolled over on her or something, but um, we were still friends. I didn't kill her. <laughs> <laughs> I ruined it. No, nah, I was just like, oh, whoops. I guess that was my fault. It was nice to sleep with a snake because it's Arizona. It's hot as fuck. But if you've got a cool little snake slithering on you, it feels pretty good. And that's why I'm now a furry. I'm only attracted to snake women. Oof. Until they bite me. And then I'm really attracted to them. <laughs> oh. Well, uh, I don't know. You got any additional thoughts about Friday the 13th? Mm, no, it's boring. Yeah, it is just kind of fucking boring, isn't it? Again, hmm. they, they get ex- kind of interesting when they get really campy later on when you know Jason's uh, punching people's heads off and you know there's coroners eating his heart. And uh, 
uh, Freddy is making him have weird nightmares about being a kid. But that's kind of funny. But I, I really don't like the Friday the 13th series. No, I don't know if we'll end up watching any of the other ones. We should watch Godzilla in 1985. I thought I liked the, the Friday the 13th Part 2, but I may have just been confused. <laughs> I was probably high at the time or something. <laughs> or drunk when I liked it. Or maybe I was just a happier, more naive person at the time. It was a simpler time. Yeah. Anyways, like- follow, <laughs> follow me on Twitch. I have a, um, a plan to take the Twitch world by storm. Are you familiar with uh, Takashi69? The, the pedophile. It's the pedophile snitch. That's correct. But you know how he got famous? Mm-hmm. Just being an internet troll, starting beef with other more famous rappers, basically just pissing people off, being real inflammatory. Are you going to do that with Twitch, Twitch uh, personalities? I'm going to do it with the fucking nerds on Twitch because they're all pussy little bitch anyways. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that reminds me. Uh, I'm at a Sean McDonald on Twitter. Uh, what's your name on Twitter? Kyle Main with two Y's. K-Y-Y-L-E-M-A-N-E. We're really bad at... Uh, promoting ourselves or even telling people where to find us as my wife has pointed out yeah i don't really use twitter that much oh recently i have been because um you know independent uh news media and shit but uh i mean i guess you follow me on twitter i'm probably won't talk to you or anything but uh you can i'll talk to you ask me some questions yeah you can talk to sean on twitter um i might not answer him but you know feel free all right, well, check it out. Do that. Um, rate and review this yes. podcast. Apparently, that does help. I don't know why. Oh, also, subscribing helps. So, subscribe on whatever platform you're using and tell your friends about it. That's the, the key thing is word of mouth. Uh, I need to get better at that, but I do not go outside currently. Maybe should I promote the podcast when I go to the next protest? <laughs> we should have had business cards printed up. No, nah, that's, <laughs> that's terrible. <laughs> um, yeah, that's about it. Uh, I do have one uh, final shocking revelation. You have three testicles. No, in fact, um, one time I hurt one of them really bad. So, oh, I remember that. I have two, but I don't know how well one of them works, and it's also still really sensitive. <laughs> it was as big as a grapefruit. Yeah, it was pretty bad. Uh, yeah, my final shocking revelation is I've mentioned this before how uh, I usually plan out the films very far in advance or I have recently like the last two phases of movies we've watched like I, I went from like last summer to Christmas and then around Christmas time I went from then until uh, we're all set up to go until Halloween basically at this point so that said I'm being 100% genuine didn't plan this in advance, didn't make any... I don't know how I would have planned it in advance, but I didn't make any changes to the list or anything. Uh, it's just uh, just coincidence, I'll All right. say. Uh, the film we're watching next week is Do the Right Thing. <laughs> what so, uh, What's Spike Lee have to say these days? I don't know. Uh, Cornell West was on Anderson Cooper, and he basically uh, he laid it down pretty well, and I was like, all right, I love Cornell West. He always knows what to say. Nothing against Spike Lee. He's a good filmmaker. Uh, he's, I mean, Cornell West didn't make Do the Right Thing. That's true. But Spike or Cornell West. Or uh, Basketball Diaries. Oh, that's true, too. Yeah, but Cornell West um, didn't um, yell at Reggie Miller. <laughs> Actually, that's like the best 30 for 30 documentary is the one about Reggie Miller and uh, like the, the Knicks and uh, Spike Lee. 
Alright, I guess Spike Lee's pretty cool. Alright, alright. All right. <laughs> Wait, I'm not thinking of Basketball Diaries. What was it? What was the Spike Lee uh, basketball movie? Hoop Dreams? No, Hoop Dreams is the documentary one, isn't it? He got a game. Oh, he got a game. All the basketball movies that blend together in my head. Yeah, we're going to do the right thing. 1989's Do the Right Thing. Michael Rappaport in that one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so, but you're going to tell me. No, he's not. I mean, Spike Lee's in it, and uh, a lot of uh, a lot of you know uh, a lot of the New York Italian guys, eh? Didn't they make a TV show off of this? Oh, did they? I guess we'll find out next week after I do more research. I just remember when um, the dude in the bird jersey steps on his uh, his uh, Nikes, he smudges them, and everyone in the neighborhood's like, oh, and then they clown on him for having a bird jersey, which is like pretty wild to me to live in like fucking. The, the fucking the bed sty in the middle of Brooklyn and be walking around in a Celtics jersey, right? <laughs> it's because Bird's white. <laughs> that seems like a really stereotypical white dude thing to do is have a Bird jersey. And it does seem so aggressively white, too. Like, you're wearing it for a purpose if you're wearing that shit. In yeah, Brooklyn, unless you were live right? in Boston. Uh, that's the thing is, all right, so you're a white guy who moved to Brooklyn, maybe, and you're from Boston. You know, it's your team or whatever. But... To be from Brooklyn and be like, oh, I'm going to wear a fucking bird jersey instead of, like, a Knicks jersey. That's like, what the fuck are you doing? What are you thinking? I mean, the loyalty to your hometown and your home team is, uh, as other po- people have pointed out to me, is kind of weird. But I don't know. Fuck you. I love the Warriors forever. <laughs> <laughs> is it weird, though? I don't know. Part of, like, where you grow up is, like, it has an effect on who you are as a person. I personally love Bay Area. Well, certain parts of it. I don't like the city that much. Not anymore. It used to be okay. The only time I remember going to the city was um, when I was a kid. Remember, I had to go see the psychologists and stuff. Oh yeah, that was the only time I remember going to the city. I specifically remember going over the Bay Bridge and like looking out into the bay, like knowing I was going to like psychiatrist for the first time as like a six-year-old, and <laughs> traumatized me even for the city for the rest of my life. <laughs> so anytime I think of the city, that's what I think of. Psychology. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I had to go multiple times and stuff. Also, I think, was our doctor in the city or was he in Berkeley? No, he was in Berkeley. Oh. All right. Talking about Dr. Feldman? Yeah, Dr. Feldman. Yeah, he was in Berkeley. Uh, never mind then. I don't know, but I just remember that. For some reason, I associate the city with uh, being sad from being a kid. A sad kid. <laughs> but, you know, whatever. Sometimes you be a sad kid and you grow up to be a poor, sad man. That's me. yeah i don't know whatever shout out to our brothers and sisters all compatriots and all that sort of shit acab uh vhs cult 